Holy is his name. This picture of the gospel helps us see the great meaning of Christmas. You may have a seat if you are here this morning in this place, and uh, if not, I just wish you were here right now because, I mean, not as an enticement or anything, but I have in my hand here a a bag of premium Gardelli chocolate assortments, right? So do y'all think I ought to open this? I think I ought to open this. You know, um, this time of year, there's all kinds of things that are shiny and bright, and there's all kinds of things that taste really good, right? And uh, we have all kinds of things that we love to just enjoy in a lot of different ways. Um, When you think about chocolate, I, I... I don't think we usually eat chocolate for quantity so much as we eat it for quality and taste and all of those things. I mean, in this one, there's milk chocolate and there's sea salt caramel and milk chocolate caramel and 60%. How many of you all are dark chocolate people? Dark chocolate? As a kid, I didn't like it. Now I love it. You know, that's the way it goes. All these different ones. And, you know, when you think about how you eat chocolate, you often take that piece, you open it up, and you, you put it in your mouth, and you just really savor it, right? Have you ever seen the way a dog eats a treat? How does a dog eat a treat? I mean, a dog, does a dog savor anything? No. You throw a nice piece, and, and it wouldn't matter whether it was Alpo or whether it was a piece of filet mignon from Ruth Chris, you throw it at the dog, and what do they do? it's gone. I mean, it's gone. I mean, and and in fact, the better it is, the less they savor it. I mean, they don't sit there and roll it around in their mouth, right? But we, when we find something really good that's really tasty and is wonderful in that way, we just take it and we savor it. I want to say to you this morning, we've already studied Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. But this passage is so good, we are going to circle back on it this morning, and we're going to, I've purposely did not go into great detail a few weeks ago when we looked at Micah 5.2, so that now here in December, we can really take some moments and savor some of the great truths out of this passage. So take your notes, if you have your notes, take that. And uh, turn with me in your Bible to Micah chapter 5, and notice the title of the message, Savoring Micah 5.2, Reason for Joy. And so, as we've said, the world, um, in a lot of ways, is not very happy. If you watched Wednesday night, I know many of you watched Wednesday night. If you didn't watch Wednesday night, you need to go back and watch it. There's two Um, People that helped us Wednesday night, one was a little girl from India and another one was a little girl from Arizona. And um, you can kind of look at that and say, am I more like the little girl from India or am I more like the little girl from Arizona? If you don't know what I'm talking about, go back and watch that this evening or this afternoon. You'll be both entertained, I believe, and encouraged. But there are some who have no joy during this time. There are some who... Um, especially this year in 2020, this is really um, the events that are here have stolen their joy. They're, they're looking at their circumstances, and because their eyes are on their circumstances, maybe circumstances of life, or maybe it's, maybe it's just circumstances of one particular thing, your work or your health, 
or maybe a, a relationship or there's some aspect of brokenness and you can't quite get past focusing on the brokenness that's in front of you. Well, what we've been saying from our study of the book of Micah and our look at the culture in our current day, even this year, we've been recognizing that sometimes COVID and sometimes the hardships, the, the difficulties of this life, God is using to speak to us. The car wreck, the loss, the disappointment, the minor thing or the major thing, God is saying, you're right, it hurts because it's broken. The universe that you live in has been now injected with sin and that sin has brought about pain and sorrow and death. But the grand plan of God is to provide a way out, to provide a healing balm, to provide something that comes and soothes our pains, bids our sorrows to cease, and comes and heals our brokenness. This is the work of God, and it's how we see that he is a gracious and loving God. Now, uh, as we've been studying the book of Micah, we've been seeing that, yes, there's the hardship that comes about because we live in a world of sin, but there's also the mercy that God has and that he's showering upon us, and he has a plan to redeem us. In fact, notice your notes here, and for those of you that are new to us, um, I hope that this helps you know where we've been and where we're going so the message can make more sense this morning. But for those of you who've been around, and maybe some of you have been here for all nine or eight messages so far, I hope that this is really sinking in at this point. When you think about Micah, you think about, ooh, two key words, judgment and yet mercy, and that those two key words are, are helping you see that, wow, God is a holy God, but he's also a loving, merciful God. And we wouldn't even know about his loving, merciful nature if we didn't see his holy standard, his judgment of our sin. And so that's a, that's a tremendously important theology for you to grow in. Church family, that's important for you to recognize that God is a God of holiness and he calls us to his holiness, but we can only have that through his mercy and the work of his redeeming plan. So notice, the setting here is that the people of Israel are in rebellion and they have sinned against God. There's three cycles of judgment. You see that in the outline there. First cycle, destruction and then regathering. God is going to come and, and show them that they, are, that they are off, that they're wrong. He reveals that the coming judgment is there and then it comes, but then he gathers them together in order to heal them. Look at number two, doom and deliverance. That's where we've been for the last several weeks. Um, chapters three, four, and five are that. And that second one that is there, the, deliver, the, the deliverance is where we've really spent some time. Deliverance through the coming kingdom. God has a kingdom that is going to come and he is going to make right all the wrongs. And that deliverance that we're going to see is going to be brought about by what? Fill it in, a deliverer. And the deliverer is God's grand plan to come and to save us. He's, the, he's going to redeem us. He's going to rescue us. This is the message of the Bible, that God himself comes and rescues us out of our rebellion and out of our sin for those who are his children. 
And then notice there with me, down at the bottom where it says notice, the judgment prophecies are really in the middle of the page. The judgment prophecies are intended to lead God's people to repentance. And in every cycle, we see that God's mercy prevails for his people in and over his judgment. Now, here's the great and glorious news of the gospel, that God is coming to save his people, and his mercy will prevail over the judgment. Well, how is this going to happen? This morning, as we go back to savor uh, Micah 5.2 a little bit, I want us to look at the coming deliverer. And I put on here this phrase very carefully, and I want you to write it down this way, the coming deliverer, Christ Jesus. The coming deliverer, Christ Jesus. You say, well, I thought it was Jesus Christ. Um, Some might say, well, you know, I don't understand that. Sometimes at church, they reverse that. I mean, isn't His first name is Jesus, and his last name is Christ, right? Um, There's many people that would would ask that as an honest question, who maybe have not been exposed to what the Bible is all about and what the Bible really teaches. Well, let's answer that a little bit, because it's it's very important who God is in, in all of the beautiful ways in which he manifests himself. Who God is is very important for his people to understand. And so um, I hope and pray that this morning, as we look at the names of God a little bit and seek to understand why his name is the way it is to the best that we can, that we can understand, we can learn a lot about him. And we can learn a lot about his heart. We can learn a lot about his intentions. And um, so this morning, I think that this is going to be really helpful to a few people that maybe have never really understood this. And so the first thing is, yes. We've chosen the word Christ Jesus, um, as sometimes we look at this, and let, let's dig in here a little bit. First of all, you need to know that just like you have a personal name, God has a personal name. The English word that we use, God, is not his personal name. Um, that is a general name in society, and it, we, you say, but it has a big G. Well, I use it in the big G, not a little G God, like a God, but the God, big G, and I, and I call him God. And, and I would say that's completely acceptable to do that, but the Bible gives us so much more than just a generic term for who God is. God is a personal God, and listen to this. He wants you to know his name. Now, the name of God is a very interesting thing, and for us here in our English context, there's going to be some stretching here, but you can get it. You can understand this. Um, God's name, as we see in the Scripture and as He has revealed Himself, is Y-H-W-H. Y-H-W-H. And we would, we would call this, in Hebrew, this is the te- tetragrammaton, tetragrammaton, Put above the word tetra right there in those parentheses the number four because that's that's the representation of four. If if you're studying Hebrew and you're studying um, the Word of God as the religion that we see in the Bible, you see this word Y H W H and you see it over and over and over again. In fact, this occurs almost seven thousand times in the Bible. Y-H-W-H. If you were to go back, original Hebrew, and if you were to go back and look at what the Greek is saying, you would see Y-H-W-H. 
Now, the ESV translates this word L-O-R-D, with the L capital and the O-R-D capital, but in a smaller font. So it's a very particular way of showing L-O-R-D, the Lord, and you see this on your outline there, capital L is a little larger than the O-R-D. You'll see that throughout the Bible. In just a minute, we're going to see why the King James and other older translations very often translate that word, Y-H-W-H, they will very often translate that Jehovah. And so let's say, okay, so which is it? What do you mean? How did it change? What are you talking about? And I've always been confused about that. Is the name of God Jehovah? Is it Yahweh? Is it Lord? You know, what is it? Well, we want to recognize that there are many ways that the Bible refers to God, but we should not forget and we should not neglect to recognize that 7,000 times his name, Y-H-W-H, is used. Now look how this goes here. You see in the next line there, we have Y, lowercase a, and then the HW, and then a lowercase e um, that is there. So these are vowels. There were no vowels. If you look at YHWH, you say, well, how would you say that? Well, it would be impossible to pronounce that without what? Vowels. You have to have a vowel in order to be able to pronounce it. That's that's the way language works. So YHWH was the reference to God, and the Hebrew people said, God's name is not to be taken in vain. That's one of the big ten, right? It's one of the big ten commandments. And it says, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That's a very important thing to God. God is saying, my name is not profane. My name is not a curse word. Now, isn't it just like the devil who hates God and who wants to destroy the image of God and wants to tear down every aspect of God, who is powerless to do so. He is, I mean, the devil is a dog on a leash. He is, he is limited in what he can do. God rules and reigns handily over him without even a thought of, of there being a true rivalry. But God is working out his plan and working out his way, and he even uses the devil for his grand and glorious purposes. And But the devil hates who God is. So it's very interesting to me that one of the primary curse words that we have throughout time is the Lord's name. Very often, and when people are frustrated, when people um, are exclaiming, exclaiming their disgust, or when people are seeking to hurl words at someone else, very often they will invoke the name of God. And it can be as simple as somebody looking at this beautiful bouquet of flowers and somebody going, oh my God. You know, you say, well, that's not really bad, is it? I mean, you're you're just kind of expressing, you're looking at flowers, isn't that okay? Well, thou shalt not take the Lord of thy God's name in vain. That means in the common usage. It is a special name. It is not. But, it, but it's, a mention, it's amazing to me that people don't proclaim Muhammad when they're upset about something. They don't say Buddha. That's not what they do. Instead, 
they will very often, in their frustration and in their anger, they will say, Jesus Christ. They will say, oh my God. They will say all kinds of things that are against that. Now, now to me, as a Christian, it's encouraging for me to see why that is. And it, and it proclaims to me the truth of the Bible that there is a devil who loves to infiltrate and loves to tear down the image of God. And that's what he's seeking to do in this present time, in this present time before God makes all things new. So this is part of the grand rebellion of our world against God that the devil seeks to tear down God's image. But Yahweh is, is the Hebrew with vowels added. Now, just so you know, the, the people of Israel would not use the term Yahweh. They were afraid to speak the term Yahweh because of reverence from the Ten Commandments and from God's holy name. And so they would say the name, or they would say the most excellent name. And so there's Hebrew words for that. Um, and so as, the, as you do that, trying to avoid saying his name, Muslims do very much the same thing. They will, they will often not want to pronounce the name of God or even Muhammad. If they say Muhammad, they say peace be upon him immediately afterwards. That's out of reverence for the name. And so we, we see some of these things that trickle down into Islam many, many decades, excuse me, centuries and even millennia later. But notice here, J-H-W-H. So we switch from the Y to the J because of Latin. And so when you come into um, the modern languages of the world, you, you see that it's, it's switched by Latin into Jehovah or Jehovah. Um, the V um, is often... Um, switched and turned, and there's reasons for that in language, um, to the W is turned to V. And then in English, we see the, the progression even more, Jehovah, and that is the older tra English translation. So Yahweh and Jehovah, believe it or not, are the same idea, the same word, the same picture there through language. Now, notice the next part here. When we talk about Yahweh, we are talking about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Or if in your old translation you're looking at the word Jehovah, that is the Trinity, okay? That's important for us to recognize this. This is God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the Trinity. This is God together. Now, we know that God is, is completely one as Father, Son, and Spirit though he operates in three persons, three distinct persons. And this is part of the beauty of who God is. This is part of the mystery of who God is. This is part of the glory of his nature that he shares with us, that he shares with us in his image that we are made like him and that we are relational and that we are beings that come before him in this. Notice this, that the Trinity has Christ, the anointed one. And uh, the word Christ is not his last name. Christ or Christos means anointed one. And that's a transliteration from Hebrew to Greek, anointed one. So when we say Christ Jesus, we are saying the anointed Yeshua. Um, I want you to notice this. Jesus, lower right there, it says Jehovah saves. 
J-E is a pointing to Jehovah from that migration out of Yahweh, and it means literally Jehovah saves. Now, what's interesting is Yahshua, you see here, that's going back to the Hebrew side of it, it still sees, you, you see there, that it means God saves or the Trinity saves. That's the name of Jesus. That's where it comes from. That's what it, what it exactly means. If you're in Hebrew, you're saying Yeshua HaMashiach. That means Jesus, the anointed one. So here when we come to looking at Christmas, when we come to looking at the incarnation of God to save the world, what we're recognizing is, is that this infinite God, Father, Son, and Spirit, has a plan to come and to join us. And in fact, in Hebrews, excuse me, in Isaiah, it would say, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, and Emmanuel literally means God with us. So, I, I just want you to see, church family, that as we work through, as we see the names of God, the way that God works, we see that who He is cannot be separated, listen to this, from His name. He cannot be separated from His name. His name describes who He is. When we say Yeshua or Jesus, we are saying God saves. Now, it's God saves as opposed to you save, or the pastor saves, or your grandmother saves, or your good works save. The point is, if anyone is going to be saved from sin, it's because God saved them. And God wants us to know that. He wants us to know that so clearly that that's even His name to us, is that He saves us. He's a personal God. He gives us his personal name, Yahweh, as, as we inject the vowels to it. Yahweh is one way to pronounce that. Um, but that Yahweh name, when we come to the person of Jesus Christ, we see that his name describes his function, that he is saving us. Now, I want you to notice here Matthew 1.20 at the bottom of the page. And you remember here with me, this is at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, and so we see that this is right there when Joseph and Mary are together, and we see that Mary comes up pregnant, and Joseph is going to put her away. He's saying, how did this happen? And an angel of the Lord comes to Joseph. And notice here what it says in, jo in Matthew 1.20. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph's son of David, important, this is the line of David, Joseph's son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from what? The Holy Spirit. This is from Yahweh. This is from God. She will bear a son and you shall call his name what? Jesus. Now let's read it out loud together, even there at home. You can read it out loud together. You shall call his name Jesus, read it, for he will save his people from their sins. Now you see that word for is the reason that he's, he is to be named Jesus, because this is God coming to save his people. 
So his name declares his function. And um, this, is, this is just so good. There's so many people have often wondered, well, what does you know, Jesus mean? How does that work? What is the name Yeshua? The same Hebrew as Yeshua. Jesus is the English word of that. Jesus, Jesus uh, um, in Spanish, um, Jesus in French. I mean, you know, Isa, um, if you're going to Arabic. And so this name, Jesus, is the picture of the one who would save his people from their sins. And so now, with that background, with that foundation, we want to recognize that this passage of Scripture describes why it's such a big deal that he would come and that he would be born. I think it's a special privilege for us that we're studying the book of Micah right now, and we're so close to this passage in our study. Uh, circling back on it, it's very easy for us this Sunday because um, this passage, Matthew cha- or Micah chapter 5, is one of the most beloved prophecies about Jesus coming. And I believe that it's going to make so much more sense to you in just the next couple of minutes as we look at this. Notice, first of all, the passage of Scripture. Let's read it. Um, I'll read it out loud. You notice that it's in the box on the top of the page. But you, O Bethlehem Epaphrah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah... For from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, and oh so ancient days. That means, put out there to the side, eternity past. That's what it means. Ancient days, eternity past. Just put that out there to the side. But you, O Bethlehem, Epaphrah, Let's notice this. First of all, number one, notice who sent Jesus Christ. And you can fill this in. This is Yahweh speaking. This is God speaking. Now, in chapter 5, verse 1, the verse before this, it's still part of the, the closing section on the judgment that is there. They are under great judgment. Look at the word, the first word of verse 2. Look what it says. What is the first word of verse 2? but. And so there's judgment, but there's mercy. As we've been saying all along, there's judgment, but there's mercy. And this is part of what helps us to appreciate the mercy is because we see that God is warning us that we're off track, we're wrong. He's holy, we are not. And his judgment is coming. But it's not just that his judgment is coming, but there's mercy. And the mercy is going to overcome the judgment for his people. So there's several places in the Bible where the word but is used as a a, uh, transition, and it's it's really a contradiction. It it comes as a point of saying, yes, it is this way, but now it's this way. Here we see that here. There's a great contrast. And so the contrast is from judgment that you deserve to mercy that you don't deserve. And here's how the mercy is going to come. So you see the, the picture here. And who is it that is sending this mercy? It is God. It is God himself. Now, very often, we, when we think about God's salvation, we often just very often think of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, the, God the Son. We think, we think to ourselves, well, he's the one that came and rescued us from this mess. 
And praise God that Jesus came, you know, and, and some people may even wrongly assume, well, the Father is like full of wrath and the Son is like full of mercy. Have you ever been tempted to think that way? I mean, I, I, I can understand if we're not, careful, not carefully taught how to look at the, the whole Trinity. And the Trinity, I'm not sure quite how the Trinity fits in. But I, but I know that Jesus came and he left heaven and he died on the cross for our sins. So he must be the one of mercy. And Jesus wouldn't bring any wrath. He's just the sacrificial lamb. My friends, all of those are wrong statements. Because there's another passage that talks about the fact that Jesus is going to show up and his robe is going to be dripping with blood. And it's not going to just be his blood. It's going to be the blood of those he's slain. So Jesus is part of this Yahweh of wrath. But for his people, he comes and he pours out his life to rescue them. And we need to have this this full picture of the mercy and the grace of God the Father. And listen to this, the mercy and the grace of God the Spirit who comes and moves in us and works in us. You see, did not the Father send the Son? We see this in the Scripture that as we're seeking to understand how God is working and what God is doing, we get little hints and pictures of the relationship within the Godhead of who He is in His three persons that the Father, so that we can see the merciful, sacrificial heart of the Father, that He sends His own Son to be the sacrifice for our sins. And it, at that point, it's appropriate for you to think about, well, would I ever sacrifice one of my children for someone who hates me? Would I ever sacrifice my children for someone who has wronged me, who is coming against me? Would I willingly give up my own begotten, my own flesh and blood for someone who is my enemy. But that is what the Father did. And so we need to recognize, yes, the Father sent the Son, and did not the Son obey? Indeed, the Son left the hall of heaven, and He comes, He takes off His robe of all of the glory of His, of his pre-existent nature, and He takes on human flesh, He takes on a body of what we would call clay or carbon. He takes on human form. And he humbles himself from being the one who would speak and create. Because the Bible tells us in John chapter 1 that he was the one who spoke the world into existence. This is Yahweh God. God the Son. And did not the Spirit, was the Spirit involved in Jesus' coming? Absolutely the Spirit was involved. How was the Spirit involved in Jesus' coming? How did Mary conceive a child? The Bible is very, very clear. It was not through Joseph. It was through the Holy Spirit. This breaks the lineage of sin that is is through human um, propagation, and we see that now God, God is injected into the equation, and when we start to see the beautiful virgin birth, we begin to see the importance of that, that God is saying, I am coming to you, and I 
am the infinite God-man for your salvation. So the Holy Spirit comes. And not only the Holy Spirit comes and conceives Christ, but the Holy Spirit, we see it numerous places. The Holy Spirit fills the Lord Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes and powers the Lord Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes and draws people. The Holy Spirit, by His Spirit, God is working His grand plan. Father, Son, and Spirit perfectly working in harmony for the salvation of His people. You get that? It's very, very important. Father, Son, and Spirit working carefully together. Look at 1 John chapter 4 and verse 9. It's right there underneath number 1. In this the love of God was made manifest upon us. So this is how we see it. The word manifest means to be shown. In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only Son into the world so that the world might live through him. And so here's the picture that what is the motivation? The love of God. So this is the love of the Father. This is the love of the Spirit. This is the love of the Son who would come and lay down his life that we might live. And so that 1 John 4, 9, I hope you're sitting there looking at it. Look what it says. This is the love of the Father made manifest among us that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live. That is a Christmas passage. Like so many passages that talk about the incarnation, God taking on, our, taking on flesh, we see this. So this passage in chapter 5, verse 2, it says, for from you shall come forth from me. That's the big picture. This is from God. Number two, not only do we notice who sent Jesus Christ, but we notice where Jesus was sent to be born. And this is the town, Bethlehem, Epaphra. And so I want you to notice here, this is where he is sent. And there's a reason for that. And I hope that this morning you, you really see that everything in the Scripture is there for a reason um, and God's plan. The first point here is, why would he come to Bethlehem? Because of the history. It's deeply symbolic. In Genesis 35, back toward the beginning of the whole revelation of who God is and what he's doing, Benjamin is born there, and Rachel dies giving birth as they are there. So this is Jacob and Rachel. Benjamin is being born, um, and as Benjamin is being born, as she is dying, she calls him ben Onai, Ben-Onai, which means son of sorrow. This happens at Bethlehem. But we see that Jacob, the father, called him Ben-Jamin, son of my right hand. The word Ben means son of. So Ben-Onai, son of sorrow, Ben-Jamin, son of my right hand. And who is Jesus in heaven at this moment? He is at the right hand of the Father. God the Son is at the right hand of God the Father. And so do you not see that we, we start to see God's plan here that as he is bringing about the events of Jacob and Rachel, bringing his salvation plan, promising a Messiah here well over a thousand years before Jesus would ever be born, really more like over 1,500 years before Jesus would be born, we see that he is the picture of the son of sorrow and the son of my right hand. You say, why would Jesus be the son of sorrow? Read Isaiah 53. 
You see, Jesus would come and take on our sin. This is dark and black. This is deep and hard. This is death. Jesus would go to death. This is the high king of heaven coming and dying. The angels, can you imagine the angels when they see him leave heaven to go be conceived? And we see this picture of him coming. I've seen beautiful depictions in literature and other things of all of heaven watching the Son lay down his priestly robe, lay down his glorious robe of godness and take on human flesh, and the angels are going, what is happening? We see that they watch, and then perhaps as they are there, the Holy Spirit comes and he is conceived in Mary, and we see that eventually the angels, they proclaim to the shepherds, The Savior has been born. The Savior of the world has been born. The angels are seeing God's plan unfold. They have a perspective I would love to have sometimes, but we also know that there's things as God's children that are saved that we have a perspective that the angels don't even know about, that the angels cannot experience, things that which the angels long to understand, that long to look into, the Scripture says. But notice here, son of sorrow and son of the right hand. That happened in Bethlehem as well. The book of Ruth, if you read the book of Ruth, this is Naomi's story that takes place in Bethlehem over a thousand years before Jesus' birth. You see, a woman of joy is Naomi, but then she goes out into a strange land, and she says, do not call me Naomi, because now my life is bitterness. And so she says, call me Mara. The the name Mara means bitterness. And so here we see the joy and the bitterness in this land of Bethlehem in the story of Naomi. But not only just Naomi, but Ruth who would come alongside her. Ruth is brought into the grand plan of God. She's a Gentile. She's not a Jew. She's not a Hebrew. She's not an Israelite. She is a Gentile. But she marries Boaz. And there we see that God's lineage is brought in through Ruth, a Gentile. This is part of the beautiful picture that the gospel is for everyone. God is bringing his people together, both that are in the nation of Israel and those who are outside the nation of Israel. And so we see that that happens at Bethlehem. This makes complete sense. Look at the next part here. And then comes the birth of King David. King David becomes the, and and Bethlehem becomes the source of kings for both Israel and Judah. So friends, when we look at the the history of what was going on in Bethlehem, God has particular places and particular purposes that reveal his grand plan. So when we read in the Bible, in verse 2, look up there at the top of the page, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, but you, O Bethlehem, Epaphra, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall go forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is of old. You see, this is God's grand plan from ancient of days. The ancient of days, from eternity past, God had a plan to bring redemption. So not only is the history of Bethlehem important, but the name is also deeply symbolic. 
Bethlehem, Epaphra. Notice here with me, Bethlehem has a double meaning. It means house of bread, but it also can mean house of war. You say, well, which is it? Well, we have other names in English that can mean two things. That, that, that's a, it's a very common thing. In every language, there are, there are names that it can, it can indicate this or it can indicate that. I remember in studying French, very often I would, I would use one name and they would say, yes, but you're not using that correctly. That's, and they would call it a faux ami, which means a false friend. You think that that's what it means, but that's not what it means because it has two meanings. So it depends on how it's being used. And so here we see that this name Bethlehem means house of bread, but it can also mean house of war. Well, what do we see in this? Jesus is the bread of life. John chapter 6, verse 35 and verse 51. Go and look at that. He becomes food for the righteous. His, his life is what feeds us. But we also see that Jesus is the lion of Judah. Now, lions kill things. Lions are powerful. Lions are fierce. Lions are awesome. Lions have a majesty about them that does not give way to others. And so we see that while Jesus is the bread of life that would be consumed, he is also the lion of Judah who is fierce and strong. You read Revelation chapter 5, you read Genesis 49, and you see that he is death to the wicked. God will judge sin. Not only do we see the double meaning of house of bread and house of war, but we also see this other word that is used to describe Bethlehem, epaphratha. And epaphratha means fruitfulness and abundance. And is this not what we see in Christ? That far beyond our sin comes the abundance of God's mercy and his grace. It says where sin abounded, what does it say in Romans? Grace abounded more. So your sin cannot be swamped by God's grace. Instead, excuse me, your sin is swamped by God's grace. God's grace can never be swamped by your sin. For his children and for those who have received his mercy and his grace, we see that there's a fruitfulness, there's a, a productiveness to it, an abundance to it. In John 15, 5, Jesus says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that does what? Bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. There, there's many different passages that we can describe the fruitfulness and the abundance that there is in Christ. Oh, what a beautiful thing that God lavishes his grace upon us. If you, if you read in Ephesians chapter 1, it says that he, he just lavishes, he pours out grace upon grace over his children. Um, over and over again, we see in the scripture that God is a God of abundance. Not only its history is symbolic, its name is symbolic, but I want you to also see here that Bethlehem's status was also deeply symbolic. And we get a little, we get a little hint of this in the verse again. Look at the screen on the, uh, in front of you. But you, O Bethlehem, Epaphra, who are, look what it says, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. Now here's part of the picture. 
Did the people of Bethlehem and the people who lived in Bethlehem and the size of the town of Bethlehem, this was a very small group in comparison to Judah and to the others that are around uh, Judah. They were massive tribes. They were tribes with all the status. Those were the ones that had great power and great influence in many different ways throughout the people of God, throughout the nation of Israel. But when you look at Bethlehem, it's just a small place. It's an important place, but it's a small place. It's, It's a small town. It's not the huge Jerusalem. It's not the huge place where the temple is and where all of the activity is and where everybody goes to offer sacrifices. Not everybody comes to Bethlehem to offer sacrifices. It's not the center of the economy. It's not the center of the king. It's not the center of the people, of the temple. Bethlehem is outside of Jerusalem, and it's a small place. Now notice here with me, Why would we say this is deeply symbolic? It's deeply symbolic because Jesus always goes to the little ones. Jesus always goes to the little ones. This is the nature of God. You say the little ones. You mean the children. He said, suffer the children to come unto me. Yes, children are a big deal to God, and God God says, unless you come to me with the faith of a child, you cannot be mine. You cannot come to me. You must come with the faith of a child. But here we see that it's not just in age, but much more importantly, it's in heart. It's in pride versus humility. Notice here in Psalm 138 and verse 6, for though the Lord is exalted, underline it, he regards the what? So even though he is high and big, it says he regards the lowly, but look what it says, but the haughty he knows from afar. Now, some of you um, are speaking English as a second language. You say, I don't know the word haughty. Haughty means the proud, the puffed up. The people who think that they're better than everybody else. The one who in his own heart has a superiority over others. Jesus says, I didn't come for them. You see, I came for the ones who were lowly. I came to the ones who say, Lord, forgive me, a sinner. Not the proud one who stands in the doorway of his house and says, everybody see me pray. Everybody watch me in my religiosity. You see, Jesus comes for the lowly. Jesus comes not for those who are righteous, righteous in their own eyes. Jesus comes for those who realize that they are broken and that they're sinners. You see, your pride will keep you from God. Your sense of self-righteousness will keep you from God. But a proper view of your own human heart as being broken and sinful before God and needing the grace of God, the saving grace of God, is that is what invites his salvation. That is the faith that leads to renewal. Look at James chapter 4 and verse 6. God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. You see, by the Messiah coming and being born in Bethlehem, as opposed to Rome or opposed to Athens or opposed to Jerusalem, we see the heart and the plan of God. 
Does that make sense? We see much more that God is a, is a God of humility. He is a God of power and of might, but His love is a humble love. And He calls us to be like Him. So where Jesus was sent to be born is a very big deal. And Bethlehem has it historically in its name and in its status. And what we see in all of this is notice number three as well. Notice God's sovereign work and timing to bring Mary to Bethlehem. Now what's interesting here is is that God is at work and all of his plan is always coming together. You need to never wonder and never doubt. I read last night um, of someone who had written into one of my friend's um, programs. He, he is a TV producer for Christian television and um, uh, very, very good program, very good sharp guy. And he said one of the people who wrote in just is totally distraught, very upset, questioning what is God doing, why would God allow this, uh, really thought in his email just says, I don't understand what God is doing. And certainly, I mean, in really indicting God, saying God has made a mistake. Can you imagine? My friends, listen, God is always at work, and his work goes forward perfectly without a hitch. You may not see it. You may not understand it. You may not understand what his hand is doing. But if you will begin to truly read the Bible and see what God is doing, God always knows what he's doing. And there's not a molecule that moves in space or an electron that moves without his, his work and his plan. He is ordering all things after the counsel of his will. And we can trust in that. He calls us to trust in that. You see, his sovereign work is to, in his timing is there. You see, notice this. Mary lived two days' journey north of Nazareth. And don't forget, she was nine months pregnant. And back then, in the poverty of that place and all of the things, you either walked or you rode perhaps the cheapest beast of burden you could have, a donkey. And so there is this picture of Joseph and Mary by decree of the emperor of the Roman Empire. He, he says, all is going to be counted and you have to go. Notice here with me in Galatians chapter 4, 4. But when the fullness of time had come, so this is God's timing. God had the timing. You say in history, yes, in history, but also in that year, in that moment. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman. We see that in Galatians 4. And why was he born? He was born into the law, under the law, to fulfill the law so that we could go free. In, in Luke chapter 2, in verses 1 through 5, and just, this is just a portion of that, you notice here, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. He's in Rome, Caesar in Rome, that all the world should be registered. And so... You know, what's interesting here is that Caesar Augustus, without knowing anything, was fulfilling God's plan in his work because God was using Caesar Augustus in Rome to move Mary from Nazareth to Bethlehem at just the right time. Why? Because he has purpose in everything he does, in all that he does. Notice here with me, 
Proverbs 21 and verse 5, I love this. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. My friends, I, I have faith that God knows what he's doing in ordering together his plan of our salvation and the fact that he has this beautiful thing called the incarnation where he comes and he joins us in our problems. He joins us in our condition and he shows us the way out. This is the loving heart of God. And we see it at Christmas. We see it at the incarnation. So here's some key questions for you. And this goes back to some of the early ones. Number one, have you deeply considered that the Father, Son, and Spirit were equally involved in God's salvation plan? I want you to understand that God, in all of his glory, in all that he is, Father, Son, and Spirit, has a heart to save his people. For God so loved the world that he would come. My friends, let that be a testimony to your heart that God has a plan for you, that God has a plan to save those who would run to him and trust in him. If God is giving you the grace to believe in him, friends, I would say reject your sin, reject your unbelief, and run in faith to what he has given you. He says, if anyone will come into me, I will not cast him out. Run to him. This is the heart of God. God's spirit is perhaps convicting you. His spirit is convicting you to believe and to trust in him. Run to him. Look at number two. Have you come to realize that every detail of God's plan matters for his glory? You see, every detail matters for his glory. God is showing us his brilliant, wise plan. And as you read the scripture, here's what I hope this means to you. I hope that this means that as you begin to read the scripture more and more, as you study the Bible more, you can start to see, wow, it all fits together. He has a glorious plan. It all means something. Now, there's a lot of things as I read, I don't yet understand that. I'm studying the Bible. The, studying the Bible is a lifelong process. And if you could live a thousand lifetimes, you would never fully understand it this side of heaven. With the depths of his grace and the depths of his knowledge and the depths of his holiness are too much for us to fully understand. But my friends, we start and we launch in this journey through this life of faith. And then one day, the Bible tells us that we will know as we are known. So when we finally get to heaven, we're going to have eternity to discover all of the, of the great excellencies of who he is and his grace toward us. That is amazing. May we constantly be amazed at every detail. Now here's another thing. Number two has to put out there to the side. This builds my faith. You see, what happens is the Word of God, as you study the Word of God and as you see His grand plan, you will grow in faith. Your faith will not grow if you ignore the Bible. 
Your faith will not grow if you do not come to look deeply into the things of God. But when you start looking into the Bible, when you start saying, when you start saying, Lord, help me to see and understand your grand plan of creation, fall, redemption, glory, or restoration, we, we start to say, wow, look at all that he is. And the more you discover what he's done in the past, the more you discover what he's doing now, and the more that you discover about what he's promised for the future, your faith will grow. And people who have great faith have, listen, great joy. If you don't have great faith, it is hard to have great joy because this world really stinks sometimes. Life is hard. But when we look and we see the excellencies of his promises, and we see the excellencies of his grace. You know, I look around this room and I just see people who have gone through great hardships. There's people in this room that have handicaps that they've dealt with all their life. There's people in this room that have gone through just tremendous broken relationships. There's people in this room that have lost children. There's people in this room that even right now, they're going through a great turmoil and a great hardship, some in the mind and some in the heart. Listen, friends, the way to joy in all of this is to know more and more God's grand plan. And so when we look at passages like Micah 5.2 and we come and we study them and we see that, wow, in history and the name and in status, this shows the heart and the plan of God. Our faith will grow. Look at number three. Is Bethlehem the house of bread or the house of war for your heart? Is Jesus the source of life for you or is Jesus and his judgment going to be the source of death because you have not trusted in him? This is the gospel. The gospel says, here's life, will you believe? Here's life, will you receive it? Here's life, will you accept it? The Bible says in in John chapter 1, but as many as received him, to those who believed in his name, that Yeshua saves, that's what it means, to those who believe that God saves, he gives the right to become children of God. You see, this is the bread, this is the life, this is eternal life that he offers. But some say no. And for them, Bethlehem is the house of war. They will receive the judgment of God without the mercy of God, without the grace of God. And I would say to you in this day, do not turn away from the Savior who came to Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, preached for three years the heart of God, and then showed us as he laid down on the cross of Calvary and allowed them to drive nails into his feet and hands, was lifted up to be rejected, mocked, and scorned, all to show us the depth of his love. That this God who creates stars and universes is the God who comes and humbly lays down his life and says, come and follow me. My friends, may we see the glory of God's salvation, and may we see it at Christmas. May every light on every tree, 
May every song, may every sweet thing that we have to eat be part of the picture that there is a God who comes and rescues. And may our hearts with his grand and glorious plan. Father, Son, and Spirit rescuing us. Would you stand with me for prayer?